you join us at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. You join us on our perch at the far end of the bar. Thank you. That's because I didn't write it down. <laughs> you join us on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And we're just about remembering the words to start the programme this week. Look, uh, I want to tempt you straight away with a drink. May I? Straight away with a drink? Straight away. Well, I don't know how that's going to work, because normally we have a little bit of a chat, and then there's I time know, for the little bit of the, the yeah, drink pouring. I, and I know. I, where I am know, I going to put I'm, it now? Well, look, look, look <laughs> just move all your stuff from that side of the desk, and let me offer you a drink that was invented in 1885, and it's been around for a while. Okay. Right. Um, let's play a little bit of guess what this is. The inventor described the drink as a brain tonic, mm. an intellectual beverage, okay, and advertised it as a patent medicine. He claimed it cured headaches, upset stomach, and fatigue. Do you ever suffer from fatigue? <laughs> Get the old fatigue. I'm sorry, darling, could you leave me in a quiet room? I'm suffering from the fatigue today. The way you said it initially was, it sounded like something you and I would definitely suffer from. Fatigue. Fatigue. (laughs) (laughs) Any ideas where I'm going with this? I could regularly deal with a cure for all three of those things. Well, indeed. So uh, my interest is piqued. Well, yes, Um, but you would want to try something that did all that, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's an alcoholic drink, is it? Well... Let's go a little further into it, shall we? Mm. Um, There were a lot of patent medicines around at the time. Remember, we're talking 1885. Combinations of so-called exotic ingredients and also drug compounds that, according to the people who made them, cured a wide range of ailments. You know, the old snake oil salesman Mm -hmm. here uh, would do everything from cure your headache to shampooing your carpet. But... You could uh, shampoo your carpet with snake oh, oil. Usually, usually, and, and more, is it clean your bicycle with it as well. <laughs> but they often contained ingredients that we know now can be a little addictive. Okay. Things like opium. Oh. As well as toxic elements like mercury mm. and lead. Of course, they put mercury in the water nowadays, don't they? Oh, they, they do. That's why yeah. none of us have any teeth. I was reading about that on the internet, so it must oh, have been yeah. true. Anti-Flow's Facebook, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, remember, this is the 19th century. Yep. Uh, patent medicines weren't regulated like uh, pharmaceuticals are today. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Anyone could claim their product had health benefits without having to prove its effectiveness or reveal its risks. Though I, though I suggest that they probably had no idea of the risks. Oh, a little bit of this and a pinch of that. Oh, what's this? Hmm, the barometer seems to go up and down. I'll put some of that in there as well. <laughs> but there was something about this stuff which was whipped up in the inventor's backyard that appealed to people. That's where all the best drinks are invented, obviously, in the backyard. In the backyard. Uh, it may have been the cocaine in the mixture that did it. Yeah. But that doesn't explain its popularity because even when eventually got they got round to taking the cocaine out it's still sold okay i think i'm uh, i think i've caught up with you now yeah okay so maybe it was the caramel flavoring that did it you will have guessed by now i'm sure that we're offering you a glass of coca-cola there you go coca-cola coca from the cocaine cola from the cola nut which apparently contains caffeine and uh, um, another another stimulant as well just mm. to get you going. Uh, the inventor of said drink was one John Stith 
Pemberton. Yep. Chemist. And uh, when he wasn't um, being a chemist, he was out in the backyard mixing up gruel uh, and eventually alighted upon this. Now, you will have heard, and we may have even um, perpetuated this notion on the radio in the past, that when they first uh, invented cocaine, when John Stith Pemberton came up with his concoction, pouring one thing from a beaker into another flask, a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah, certainly Dr. Jekyll anyway, and then turning into Mr. Hyde, that this bubbling uh, mixture that he concocted was green. Have you ever heard that? I think, I think we've talked about that before, yeah. What a load of Friar's Balsam. Oh, it really? was never green. Oh. Never green. It was never green. Uh, I, I'm sure that I was, I, I was um, seduced to that at one point because the idea that Coca-Cola was green is quite an exotic idea. But it was never green. It was always the same colour because they put the caramel in and it was brown. Mm. The thing is about old John Stiff Pemberton, who you can imagine died a multi-millionaire, yep. having come up with this, not exactly. Because although he was a good chemist, um, he wasn't very good at the old money side of things. Oh, dear. And he sold the recipe for an astounding... $238. I mean, that's quite a lot in those days, but not a vast amount. It's not millions. No. $238.98 to be exact. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, when you come to it, you think, well, you know, of all the billions and billions that the Coca-Cola company... Yeah. The, the, the fellow who made the money, certainly initially, was one Asa Griggs Chandler. Asa Griggs Chandler. He bought it from uh, John Stith Pemberton, and uh, he was the one who set up the Coca-Cola company. Right. Very good. So there we are. So you'll take a glass of Coca-Cola, will you? Well, I don't know. I think I might, uh, I might stand with Cristiano Ronaldo on this issue. Really? Yeah. Did you not see his press conference during the Euros? I did. The Coca-Cola, uh, Coca-Cola was sponsoring the drinks. Yes. And they were placed in front of him. And he moved them to one side and just said, Agua. Agua, well, they always say. So he's like, we now know he has shares in water. <laughs> um, but, but he could have put he could have put the cook to one side and put something else there, couldn't he? He could have done, yeah. And that one thing would have been... Well, if he was Scottish, like the Scottish captain, is it Andrew Robertson, hmm. he replaced it with a, a bottle of Iron Brew. Oh, good. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this. Nothing like reinforcing the cliche, is there? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but if you were going to replace it with another cola... When you go in a restaurant and you say, I'll have a Coke, and they say, uh, actually, it's Pepsi, is that OK? Yes, Is that what you right. could have replaced that, it with? That, that's right, yes, yes. Or it's very seldom that you go into a, a restaurant and say, I'll have a glass of Coke, and they say, it's Top Hat, is that OK? Mm, they don't no. say that, do they, very often? No, they don't shop at Lidl. Or Happy Shopper. Well, they were. <laughs> <laughs> but Pepsi, now, now I'm going to keep this going for a moment, if, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Pepsi, um, the inventor of Pepsi was one Caleb D. Bradham, who sold his drink under the name of Brad's Drink. Okay. Uh, I'd like a Coke, please. No, I'm sorry, we only do Brad's Drink. No, it doesn't sound the same, does it? No. Uh, he bought the name Pep Cola, which he then changed to Pepsi-Cola. Right. Um, and the, they were a very small regional company. Uh, they didn't have anything like the reach of Coca-Cola for years and years and years. 
Do you remember that? Are you old enough to remember the Pepsi Challenge? Yeah, I do remember the Pepsi Challenge. They'd have the two or three cola drinks, wouldn't they? Yeah. And then... Um, well, specifically, certainly specifically two, A and B. Yeah. And you never knew which was which. No, and then uh, I never actually got to do the, the Pepsi Challenge, but I do remember it being quite a kind of uh, significant cultural thing back in the day, wasn't it? It was, it was. And, and uh, Pepsi, um, when they started doing this as a, a marketing thing, as an ad campaign, um, this was back in the 70s, and it really was a really small company. Nothing like the size of the Coca-Cola company, which by then had blossomed into this worldwide thing. And um, Pepsi came up with this challenge where they discovered that people, well, initially they, they found out that in a blind tasting, there was a slight pef preference for their drink as long as you didn't tell people what the product was. Mm. The power uh, of branding, eh? Uh, and indeed. To do the blind tastings, they went off to San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Because the good burgers of San Antonio weren't Pepsi drinkers. They were rock solid for Coke. And in all the research that they did prior to going to San Antonio, they didn't even know that Pepsi existed. Really? So, uh, the admin took their cameras down there with the intention of discovering, and I like this, because they didn't go down and give them a glass of Pepsi and say, do you like this, it's Pepsi. What they did was they, they set up the challenge with A and B, and the ex the, the, they, they, they went with the intention of discovering the expressions that the Coke drinkers, not the Pepsi drinkers, made when they discovered what they were drinking. Okay. Right? Interesting. So, there's a commercial that they've set up that they did early on. It's a real thing. This, they, they, they set up the situation, but it was a real situation with a grandmother with her little granddaughter standing behind her. Mm -hmm. And they offer her cup A, and Granny tries it, and then she offers, then she tries cup B. And then she tells the taster which she prefers. And the covers are taken off, the bottles, and the little granddaughter says, Grandma, you picked Pepsi. And the grandmother said, I can't believe it. I've never had Pepsi in my life. I guess I must like Pepsi better than Coke. Boom! Wow. There you are. There's your line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's your line. Ten seconds that changed the world of advertising. Was it real? Yes, it was. Yes, absolutely real. No scripting or no, none, or... none whatsoever. Obviously, they went out doing hundreds of these things, and mm. they would have chosen the ones which showed their product in a good light. Yeah. But that's what they did. It's like the you remember the Daz challenge with Danny Baker? Yeah, they on went the doorstep, knocking, knocking on doors, and people used to say, "Oh, that's a setup," but it wasn't. They really did go knocking on doors and saying, "You know, I'll give you two boxes of this for your one of Omo or whatever it was." But they went out and they did this this challenge, and they got this. Granny's uh, extraordinary line, I guess I must like Pepsi better than Coke. And that was the money shot. That was the money shot. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Stay with me. This is a great story because they then took this campaign all the way across America, region by region. Eventually, it went all over the world, which is why we in the UK got to see it. 
but Coca-Cola, of course, in the meantime, biggest drinks company in America, in the world, they're mortified. Well, yeah. They, they're not going to be outshone by some fiddly little regional Coca-Cola outfit. So what do they do? They fight back. They sue Pepsi, claiming unlawful advertising. Yeah. Now, on what, on what grounds? Well, on the grounds that, you know, it was working for Pepsi and not for Coke. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but the press pick up this lawsuit and they go, well, hang on a minute, what's wrong with Coca-Cola Company that they have to sue this little regional company? And so suddenly it's now in all the papers, which is, of mm. course, PR, which is even more advertising. Yeah. And you're not even paying for it. Everyone is now talking about Pepsi. Of course, Coke came back with... Uh, you know, um, uh, I'd like to teach the world to sing and, and all of that. And yeah. some br brilliant campaigns after that. And they've um, hijacked Christmas, haven't they, now? Uh, oh, it, Coca-Cola well, truck. It, well, I mean... And I, it, it's, it's because of then Father Christmas is red and white. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, he, originally, um, in all the artwork up until um, Coca-Cola got their hands on it, his outfit was green. Um, yeah. And now it's it's the Coke colours. But, but there you are. What a great story, eh? Yeah, well, I mean, they they are one of those companies, aren't they, Coca-Cola, that just made so much money they could pretty much afford to do anything. And they did the same with Virgin Cola as well. Yes, they did. I remember reading about that. Yeah. That was very successful in the UK, especially. It was out selling Coke. Yeah. And then they did deals with Coca-Cola, did lots of deals with um, distributors and and supermarkets and things. and Tried to get it off. Well, and it was, yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, so... No. Don't mess with Coca-Cola. We should probably say at this point, uh, bearing all that in mind about how good they are at uh, protecting yep. their brand. Yep. And a notoriously litigious company as well, Coca-Cola. We like Coke. What a lovely, refreshing drink. And, and indeed. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and if you would like to send us a crate, we will happily drink it. Got something you want to tell us? Email thefarendofthebar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. So, what have you got over there? Well, I wonder if you, like me, had assumed that 2020 vision meant perfect eyesight. I, th I think that's what it does mean, doesn't it? Well, apparently not. I'd always assume that. I'd always you hear it all the time, don't you? Oh, I've got twenty twenty vision. I mean, I can't say that, but you'd hear people saying it as if that's the standard, um, like the perfect vision that you can get. Well, apparently not. Most young kids, so before their vision starts to fail and uh, and they need uh, glasses as they get older, have twenty fifteen vision. Right. So twenty slash eight is the best a human can get. That's the best that's ever been recorded. 20 and, slash 8. Yeah, and 20 slash 5 is only found in a very select group of birds of prey. Crikey. So 2020 vision actually is pretty much the average for human vision. That's kind of like the... So it's the standard, I suppose, but it's certainly not the perfect vision that uh, we've all assumed that it meant for all these years. Well, how I mean, about that? It's, it's only Andy Murray who has 30-15 vision. Very good. Very good. Um, about one in three American adults has 20-20 vision without any assistance at all. See, my daughter, 
um, was told uh, as, a, as a young woman going to the um, uh, optometrist for probably for the very first time. She was tested and she was told that she has 20-20 vision. She holds that like a banner above her head. Mm. Of course, I've got 20-20 vision. You're an old man. Every time I can't find my, my glasses, and I do have dozens of pairs of glasses, as you well know, <laughs> scattered around the house in different places because I'm always losing a pair of glasses, so therefore I have to be able to pick up a pair of glasses. And she says, you're an old man, your vision is rubbish, I have 20-20 vision. Mm. So next time I can go back and say, well, that, that, that's, that's not it. You need 28 vision. That's what you need. It's not actually all that good. No, rubbish. No. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I, You're I can a, hold that against her now. If anything, she's below the average, just slightly. <laughs> <laughs> and these things are perpetuated. We, we cling on to this, don't we? It's like um, uh, your IQ. What, are you, what is your IQ? Mine? Yes. I, I can't remember. I've never done it. I was going to say, that would suggest it's ever been tested. Yeah. I've done an online test, and uh, obviously... That was a load of rubbish, because it said it was like 150 or something, and that's just blatantly not true. So, <laughs> the last time I did an online test for this, it was, it was well over 150, and then I discovered that that was my blood pressure. Yeah, <laughs> it, I, I, I'd never tried it because no. uh, I would make, and I know that that it's couched in such a way that it's an in, uh, a test of your intelligence and not of your knowledge. Um, your inter or, or your intellectual capacity is that right? Mm. Is that my, am I saying this right? The people from right. will, be, will be phoning in, will be will be emailing us, uh, saying you've got it all wrong. I'm I mean, if anyone from Mensa is bothering to listen to this, I'll be bloody amazed, won't you? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's a lot to learn here, and and we're, and we're learning most of it. <laughs> While we're talking about such things, do you fancy a pub quiz? Always up for a pub quiz. Right, well, it's ever-changing pub quiz that we do here. Mm. There's always something or other that we can we can quiz you about. Um, I've called this pub knowledge. It's, it's generally general knowledge, or not, as the case may be. Okay. Three questions for you. You yep. can have a ponder, and I know you like to cogitate. I, I will be cogitating. Let's dive straight in. Question number one. Why did people break into churches and other people's houses in the early 1600s and dig up the floor? 1600s. Why did people break into churches and other people's houses in the early 1600s and dig up the floor? How is that general knowledge? General knowledge is who won the FA Cup in 1978. That's not general knowledge. That's football knowledge. This is well, general knowledge. Floor digging. This is what the this is what the people want. How, how can floor digging in the 1600s qualify as general knowledge? You'll be surprised. This is pub knowledge. <laughs> pub knowledge. After six or seven pints, there will be always there will always be someone at the bar who will tell you a lot about digging out the floor in the 1600s. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we've all stood next to him. Question number two: When you walk along the prom, 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 where the brass band plays, tillion pom pom. Uh, when you walk along the prom at the seaside, what is the distinct seaside smell that you can detect? 
there. So you go, ah, the smell of the seaside. And then someone will say, ah, yes, that's... So I want to know what it is. It depends on uh, which resort you've gone to as well, doesn't it? it? Yes. In my experience, for example, the prom at Western Supermare smells vastly different to the prom in Blackpool. Oh, okay. All right. When you walk along the prom at the seaside, what is the distinct seaside smell you detect? Mm. And question number three, um, some words for you. Okay. What are the words squidger? Squidger. Scrunge. Scrunge. Crud. Crud. And Bristol associated with. Bristol as in the name of the city, what I am in. Squidger, scrunge, crud and Bristol. Yeah. What are those words okay. associated with? Oh, some interesting cogitation to do here. All right, well, you cogitate for a little while and we'll come back and we'll do the answers a little bit later on. Well, here we are in the bar and we've got the jukebox, uh, which never plays during this particular podcast. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I think it's got something to do with rights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a royalty-free podcast. Um, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, there were dozens of television shows that had great signature songs. Not yes. just the signature tune, signature songs. Um, some more recent ones, of course, you can name Friends and Sopranos, Happy, Happy Days, I suppose, is relatively... No, although no, that I guess is seventies, isn't it? Happy days. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. that's getting on. But isn't uh, it? you go back into the mists of time. There were things like Rawhide and the Flintstones and Tomcat and the Beverly Hillbillies and White Horses over here. One of the most wonderfully complex, tongue-twisting lyrics for any television show has got to be the signature tune or signature song for Mister Ed the Talking Horse. Now this will be okay. before your time. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of Mr. Ed the Talking Horse, but I couldn't tell you anything. Well, about let me I'll walk you through, without bursting into song because we don't want any copyright problems here. I'll, I'll walk you through the lyrics. Mm. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Go right to the source and ask the horse; they'll give you the answer that you'll endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Ed. People yakety yak a streak and waste your time of day. But Mr. Ed will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And this one will talk till his voice is hoarse. You've never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am Mr. Ed. <laughs> the, the, the tune to it is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Written by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, who worked on all kinds of movies and television. But here we go. You know the, the Nat King Cole song, Mona Lisa? Mm-hmm. Beautiful song. Que sera, sera, Doris Day? Uh-huh. Buttons and Bows, Bob, Bob Hope? Probably not. Silver Bells, the Christmas song? All written by Jay Livingstone and Ray Evans. They also oh, wrote... Yeah. The tune to Bonanza. 
which which you would say, ah, yes, but that, that doesn't really work. But it does. Uh, if you go onto YouTube uh, and look up to the theme song to Bonanza, as sung by Lauren Green, who played Ben Cartwright in the series, it completely ruins it for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are some songs that are just perfect, because you get used to it, of course. And there are yeah. some some signature tunes which are just instrumentals and then you hear words to them and you go no that's not i don't care what your association is with the with the show i don't care that you were the star of the show that is wrong yeah it's it's not dissimilar to when you have a favorite song by a band and then you go and see them live and it's been a massive hit for them and everyone in the crowd is looking forward to having a right good sing-along and then they do a re a reimagined version <laughs> we thought we'd bring in more up to date yeah, and you hate it. You just hate it. If you, yeah, it's never I, I the thing. Never under, you know, that's akin to your favourite band. You go along, you see your favourite band, and they say, "Well, we're not going to do the old stuff tonight. We're going to just play the tracks from the new album, which isn't out for another two weeks." And yeah. you go, "No, don't play that. No one's heard it. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear all the fourteen number ones that you had." Yeah, we want to sing along. We don't want to hear this. But, uh, or if you if you're going to play the new stuff, at least you know, pay us off with a bit of the old stuff as well. Yes, that's a, that's a fair deal, right? Indeed. In, and I'm reminded here of Bowie at Glastonbury, that last concert that he mm. did there, which was a, a, a magnificent mix of the two, and just the most brilliant thing. But yeah. um, but please Absolutely. do not play uh, all the tracks from your new album, which has yet to be released instead of playing your 14 number ones. And th this reminds me of the time I was walking past the pyramid stage at Glastonbury and Shaken Stevens was on. And uh, he uttered the immortal words, I'm just going to do a couple of new numbers now. And I heard someone in the crowd shout, piss off, Shaky, play Green Door and bugger off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Good old Shaky. Although I must admit, his last album was brilliant. <laughs> was it? Yeah, it was really nothing like the Shaking Stevens we know and love, uh, but it was really, really good. Uh, I haven't what, got the title. I haven't got the title to hand. Next time, I'll, I'll, I'll bring the, the the album with me, and uh, I can I can tell you that there were a couple of tracks on there that were just brilliant. Okay. Okay. Uh, pub knowledge. Let's go back and do the answers to this week's pub quiz. So yeah. we began by asking why people broke into churches and other people's houses in the early 1600s and dug up the floor. Any idea why would they would be doing that at all? In the 1600s, the only thing I can think of is they, there's been some sort of the 1600s equivalent of an internet rumour that uh, stuff is buried underneath the floor and people were as stupid then as they are today and believed it. And they just went along with their uh, entrenching tools. Yeah. This was to get at the saltpetre, or potassium nitrate, a key ingredient of gunpowder, um, which was also used to cure meats as a preservative for ice cream. Well, no, not then. Uh, plus, it's an anaesthetic in toothpaste for sensitive teeth. But that's yeah. not then. But several hundred years ago, the richest source of saltpetre was the organic mulch that had seeped into the Earth's floor from human houses. In okay. 1601, the unscrupulous activities of the saltpeter men, that sounds like a 1950s um, harmony combo. Yeah, the salt, and now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the saltpeter men. 
the unscrupulous activities of the saltpeter were raised in Parliament. Uh, they break into people's houses, enter into churches, dig up the floor to steal the saltpeter. So the saltpeter was created by what, I, the, the human waste? Seeping? It says uh, that it was organic mulch that had seeped into the earth's floor from human houses. So there must have been something happening in the houses, in the churches, which would then seep into the floor and then insinuate itself into the earth and only inhabited, inhabited places. See, I have very limited knowledge of 1600s housing and churches, but I can't imagine there was extensive plumbing. <laughs> no, well, that, well that, that's, that's, you've, you've probably hit the nail right on the old uh, head there. So yeah. There OK, well, there we are. We that, that's, I, I'm still not convinced it's general knowledge, but anyway, move on. You, you, you'll get this next one. Uh, when you walk along the prom, prom, prom at the seaside, what is the distinct seaside smell that you detect? I've, I can't remember exactly. I've got a feeling it's some, it's some sort of gas, isn't it, being released by the ocean? Is that right? You would say, uh, people would say, let's go to Blackpool or let's go to Western Supermare, let's go to Margate for the ozone. Ah. Let's go for the ozone. But they were completely wrong. Oh. Yeah, because although people used to say that, they used to contend that the smell at the seaside was ozone. Ozone has an odour similar to a very diluted chlorine. Um, The seaside sometimes has this odour as well. But the smell, the true smell that you get at the seaside is not ozone. It's not chlorine. It's the sea air mixed with a smell of decomposing sea life and vegetation. It's seaweed, Lovely. basically. It's seaweed. That's the smell. That's, that's what you get. You, you're telling me I'm walking along Western Supermare beachfront. You spend a lot with, of time in Western Supermare, don't you? With my ice cream. Yes. And or candy floss, or if I'm feeling particularly carefree, both. And a bottle um, of cola. Yeah, or Pepsi. Um, Especially a bottle of Coca-Cola. And, uh, but, you know, I, some people prefer Pepsi. And um, what I'm actually smelling is rotting corpses of uh, animals fish and, and vegetation. And seaweed, yes. yes. Lovely. You've booked your holiday now, haven't you? Yeah. I can mm. tell you. Yes. And third and final uh, were the words squidger, scrunch, crud and bristle. What are they mm. associated with? Well, I've always thought like crud is you know sort of muck mm-hmm. dirt that sort of thing but yeah. then bristol uh i'm imagining if it's if, if we're going way back when i'm imagining it's something to do with um ports you know like shipping and that sort of stuff or if we're going to less politically correct times something to do with women's boobies um squidger and scrunge they sound like, yeah, again, they sound kind of like muck or dirt or something, don't they? So I'm going with that sort of general area. There's, there's muck, something to do with muck. dirt, or yeah. women's breasts. That's basically yeah. what you're saying. Have <laughs> you been looking in my internet history again? <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer is tiddlywinks. Oh, what? <laughs> They're all terms from tiddlywinks. Okay. Uh, a squidger is the disc used to shoot a wink. Okay. This sounds like something from Benny Hill now, doesn't it? 
a scrunge, <laughs> a scrunge is to bounce out of the pot. Mm. Crud is a forceful shot whose purpose is to destroy a pile completely. What a great crud. And a bristle is a shot which moves a pile of two or more winks as a single unit. The shot is played by holding the squidger at the right angle to its normal plane. Okay. Tiddlywinks. I told you Bristol had something to do with a pair. <laughs> oh, dearie me. And, and there, there we are. So we'll, fi we'll finish off where we began, and I'll raise a glass for Coca-Cola and Pepsi and all those other colas, and we'll be swamped by next time. Until then, from me and from him, until the next time, the bell's ringing, we're off. That's time at the far end of the bar. You've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr. If you enjoyed your time with us, please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode. And find us on all the socials. Just search hashtag TFEOTB or email us at thefarendofthebar at gmail.com. Cheers! Cheers!